It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Joey Weaver. He is Mike McDaniel. Mike, we had a great slate of Week 1 games. I hope you got to take them all in. How you doing, man? Took in a lot of them. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely ready to, to recap these. I'm doing well. Um, it was a fun weekend of football. I, in a lot of ways, this really, you know, with the buildup and everything else, this really turned out to be a fantastic slate of games. A lot of games turned out how we expected, some maybe a little bit more unexpected. Uh, but I think overall football's back, and it was uh, definitely a more exciting opening weekend than it was a year ago. I'd, I'd take that to the bank. It was definitely exciting, and it was fun. Um, and I thought it was nice because a, a lot of these games that had potential to go really sideways didn't. They stayed competitive, and they stayed fun for a long time. Um, some, some more than others and some more, um, it's a good thing that they stayed competitive more than others. There's other games that probably shouldn't have been competitive and then became competitive again. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. Um, but Mike, I, we want to you know sit here and recap these games, obviously for those who are new to the podcast, this is something that we do every, every week is come back on, do a separate recap episode, um, usually on Sunday nights or so before, um, before coming back to preview the following week's games. So Keep it tuned here for sure. We also have a couple of new little features uh, of these, I think, this year, Mike, that we're going to try to add a little bit more um, pizzazz to these episodes, as, as it were. We're going to add pizzazz. I'm gonna, that's the word I'm going to use. Um, and so to start off, Mike, the, the, the one thing I want to start off with every week on these recaps is a, just a big takeaway of, like, what did we learn? We saw all these games. You know, there was nine games um, so far that we've seen. And by the way, we are recording this um, Monday morning before the Louisville-Notre Dame game on Monday night. So we will recap that game in particular with the Week 2 uh, preview. But as, as we, we look at the first nine games that were played here on Week 1, Mike, what's the biggest thing that you learned from any or all of these games? Seasons change, but these teams are staying the same, at least some of them. Um, that, was a, <laughs> that was a takeaway for me. Um Virginia Tech and their inconsistency, Florida State and their inconsistency, uh, Duke struggling to find offense, albeit it was against Alabama. Um, you know, NC State, you know, one of those teams that looked pretty similar to last year offensively, which I wasn't sure would necessarily be the case with Matthew McKay, quarterback. Um, but I think if there was one surprise of the weekend, it was certainly North Carolina's victory uh, over South Carolina. That was the one game that really stood out to me as far as, wow that's really new and different and not what I was expecting. But other than that, a lot of these games and kind of how they played out uh, very similar in, in the way that the teams performed and the the manner in which they played to a year ago. Yeah. My takeaway was a little bit similar to that, which hat tip to Denny Erickson is there's as many as, as these teams look like they, they are who we thought they were. 
there's a few of these teams that are not who we thought they were, I think. you And you will get to that here. Um, as we've kind of gone through and previewed all these teams and we, we had an idea of what we thought they were going to be, I think a couple of these teams already early on here have showed some true colors of, of what they are or what they aren't. Um, and, and it's not exactly what we were expecting from them, um, for better and worse. And so with that in mind, let's let's go ahead and jump into the first game. And speaking of games that we thought were, uh, were not going to be competitive and then became competitive again, it was not a good story for Florida State. Uh, Boise State 36, Florida State 31. Rough, rough finish for the Seminoles here in a game that they had a, a big lead on. So first of all, Mike, this game was scheduled to be in Jacksonville. Um, and it was kind of mid-late in the week that they ended up moving it to Tallahassee with uh, respects to Hurricane Dorian and making sure that nobody's in harm's way and that all the emergency personnel are able to do their thing. So this game was moved up to noon on Saturday uh, in Tallahassee. It was a home game for Florida State, basically. Uh, Florida State jumps out to a big lead in this game. They were up 31-13 at one point, and they never scored again. Yep. And and Boise State scores, what was it, 18 straight points to, to close out the game. And uh, no, hold on. I had, this, I had that number right. 23 unanswered points. Math is hard. Um, I'm just an engineer, Mike. I, it's all good, man. <laughs> kind of getting in the swing of things here. Uh, Boise, yeah, wins this game 36-31. Florida State gets shut out in the second half. The The second half offense was rough. Um, Florida State really just could not get anything going, and their defense absolutely wore down. Boise State ends up running 108 plays in this game on offense, and you could just tell by the end, I mean – Florida State's defense, as good as they were at times, like they just ran out of gas after a while. And as much as they talked about heat and humidity being a factor and thinking it was going to hit Boise State hard, I think it ended up backfiring on Florida State that they just wore down. Like they got out physical and they got worn down. Uh, They lost to a quarterback named Hank Backmeyer. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very Boise quarterback name. Very, very. Um, 407 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Robert Mahoney, 24 carries, 142, and two touchdowns. And, you you know, we talked specifically to the wearing down of the Florida State defense. Um, Mahoney, in particular, and his ability to run the football wore down Florida State in the second half. Um, the offensive line of Boise State took it to the Florida State defense, which was not the case in the first half. Florida State's offense seemingly stalled, and, and it's – you know, on one hand, there were a lot of good things, right? Like James Blackman looked really good, 23 of 33, 327, had three touchdown passes all in the first half. Um, Cam Akers looked really good, 15 carries for 116 and a touchdown. Had a couple of really impressive runs during that during his stretch on uh, on Saturday when the Florida State offense was really clicking. There was a lot of good in the first half. And then for whatever reason, at halftime, Boise State adjusted. Like, you know, we thought they might. Uh, but what was unexpected was for all the success that Florida State had in that first half, they were really unable to get anything going in the second half. And I mean anything going offensively, Joey. Um, it was really, really rough sledding for the Florida State offense there in the second half. They had 29 plays for 61 total yards. That's not taking into account penalties. So it mm-hmm. was not very good after a very productive first half. And you know, something I tweeted out as the game was going on was, wow, Florida State has an offense and Florida State's defense looks pretty much like they did last year, which is good news for the ACC conference as a whole from a perception perspective, but bad news for the teams having to play Florida State. Well, 
boy, was I wrong because Florida State looked like an entirely different team in the second half. And the team that we saw in the second half looked much like the one we saw a year ago. And if that ends up being more the norm for Florida State than the exception, then man, oh man, this is not going to be good for Willie Taggart. And he'll definitely be on the hot seat by season's end if they certainly play like they did in that second half. Boise State's a really good team, Joey, but with the way that Florida State looked like they had that game in hand to lose the way they did and what ended up being kind of like a de facto home game being in Tallahassee, man, that is not a good look for Willie Taggart and the Seminoles here to kick off year two. No, definitely not. And like you mentioned, with a guy that we're suspecting might be on the hot seat by season's end, man, you did not did not want to start it out this way, Willie Taggart. Um, not great. I, I will say that there were some bright spots. As you mentioned, I thought James Blackman looked really good at times. Um, he, he made some really big throws. Both he and Bachmeyer in this game as quarterbacks were, were warriors. I mean, they took some shots on, on both sides. Um, Cam Akers, I thought, was fairly good. He, he had some, some good runs. He had a couple of bad moments with a fumble and that kind of thing. Um, really, the, sk- the skill talent in general for Florida State, I thought, was fairly good. Tamori and Terry, by the way, scary Terry, as it were. Man, he is good. Man, he's good, Mike. He, he took like a bubble. He took a bubble screen seventy-five yards to the house. Um, it, he was impressive. I thought um, Florida State's defense. So as, as bad as it looks that they gave up upwards of six hundred yards of offense, keep in mind that Boise State, in scoring thirty-six points, only scored three touchdowns in this game. Yep. Like Boise State was getting continually held to field goals and such. Florida State kept trying to give them long fields, and they made them go the the, the length of the field a whole bunch, but. Boise State was having trouble finishing these drives and getting the ball in the end zone. So give that credit to Florida State. But I think most importantly, Mike, the most important stat in this game, Florida State on third downs, one for 12. Not great. They they converted one third down the entire damn game. Like, that's bizarre. It's horrible. Like, that's the kind of thing, you know, and as a result, Boise State, again, 40 minutes time of possession. So if, if you, you want to blame Florida State's defense, like just recognize that they were out there for two-thirds of the game, again, facing upwards of 100 snaps and all this stuff. Like the offense, as much as it kind of produced some yards and some points at times, like they were not consistent, certainly even in the second half. But at times in the first half, they were pretty inconsistent as well. So I don't know if that's just some glitchiness that comes with a new offensive coordinator. But, man, Kendall Bryles has got to get some more consistent production out of that, that offense. Otherwise, the defense, it's going to be the same story from last year where – I felt like the defense was really pretty good. It's just they just weren't getting any help and, and kind of eventually wore down. I think the one thing to kind of monitor with Florida State, and, and you know, we kind of talked about this in the season preview when we had uh, James Holman on and we were talking about, you know, what was going to happen with the Florida State offense under Kendall Bryles. And the one thing that James mentioned and we kind of agreed with was the fact that Kendall Bryles would do a much better job at masking the issues that Florida State has specifically on the offensive line. I thought he did that in the first half on Saturday, but the problem is there's only so many ways that you can mask those deficiencies before it ends up catching up with you, right? The second half of this Florida State game on Saturday, we saw what ends up happening when a team makes adjustments and you are inherently limited by what you have up front. In Florida State's case, on the offensive line, an issue that they had all throughout last season, you know, there are a lot of bubble screens, getting the ball out quick with James Blackman. But once you cover that sort of thing up, and you're unable to run the football as effectively as you did when you were hitting on those quick hitch passes and getting your athletes in space, 
the offense becomes inherently limited. So the way in which Kendall Bryles is able to kind of adjust for the lack of production that Florida State has on the offensive line will be something to monitor throughout the rest of the season and whether or not it's sustainable throughout the course of an entire game. Because what we saw on Saturday is that while it can be effective in spurts, maybe it's not effective over the full 60 minutes of a football game. So that's something to just keep in mind and continue to monitor with Florida State. It's you know, they're inherently limited on the offensive line and what they have um, and, and, and what they have returning production wise. Uh, they have talent all over the field at many other positions, but offensive line is an area where they still need some development clearly and um, some better recruiting, quite honestly. And, you know, as that continues to happen over the course of the next several years, it's just really whether or not Florida State can really reach that elite level it comes down to whether or not they get the talent and production out of the offensive line that we come to expect out of the Florida State program. But not sure they're going to have that this year and whether or not they're able to adjust throughout the game to account for those deficiencies is something that we'll have to continue to watch. That was the other note I had written down here, Mike, was that Florida State's offensive line showed itself to be a, a still a major work in progress in this game. I mean, they, they had for such sure. issues. Yep. And, and it, was, it wasn't even just necessarily like talent skill issues. A lot of times it could have been like communication issues and those kinds of things too, which, man, those are the things you just really have to sort out. You, you, that's when you hate to see it is when they're having problems that aren't about physical ability, but just about like teamwork and cooperation. Right, like, don't make the game any harder than it has to be. For sure. Anyways, Boise State 36, Florida State 31. Uh, Mike, we got another game to recap here. And I know this is not the one that you're looking to talk that much about, but I'll probably let you start here. Yep. Boston College 35, your Virginia Tech Hokies 28. Not the start to the season that Justin Fuente was looking for here. Uh, no, definitely not. Um, so, a couple things. Number one, um, Virginia Tech's defense – specifically the pass rush and the secondary. We just talked about a work in progress with the Florida State offensive line. Let's call the secondary and pass rush two areas that we outlined extensively throughout our season previews as a work in progress. Um, pass rush, not great. Virginia Tech's defensive line, really young up front. We knew that coming into the year. It got better throughout the game, but at the outset, it was not very good. And as a result, the secondary, which isn't great to begin with, didn't look very good itself. Um, Anthony Brown, 15 to 26, 275 and two touchdowns. Now, most of this took place in the first half. Um, Virginia Tech's defense tightened up in the second half, gave up 49 yards of offense total in the second half to Boston College, including zero yards of offense in the third quarter. So credit to Virginia Tech's defense. What we saw last year was they'd fold up, right? They did not do that in this game. The rushing defense was actually quite good. Um, Boston College had 48 carries for 157 yards, and they earned every single one of those. Ended up with three touchdowns on the ground, but they're a team that prides themselves on production in the running game, and Virginia Tech was able to slow that down enough to – um, get Boston Boston College uncomfortable, especially in the second half. So credit to them as well. The problem with this game for Virginia Tech, and it continues to be an issue with Brad Cornelson in particular as the offensive coordinator, is total lack of offensive identity, right? So your skill set and on paper for Virginia Tech and in practice on Saturday, the skill set of this offense is around the depth at receiver and the quarterback's ability to hit on throws, right? And that's what you pride your offense around in theory. Um, Ryan Willis turned the ball over uncharacteristically four times, right? He, he's a guy who turned the ball over, I think it was only 11 or 12 times in total all of last season. He played in nine games. So did a pretty decent job of taking care of the football a year ago. Turns the ball over four times on Saturday. It was unrealistic, some of the th uh, uncharacteristic rather, and some of the throws he was making um, specifically to 
tight windows that were double covered. Um, he had two really bad interceptions in the end zone. Just something we're not – I wasn't anticipating to see out of the Virginia Tech offense and Ryan Willis. Now, with that being said, um, he has struggled in the past to look off his primary read. We saw that continue to be an issue on Saturday. That's something to watch with Virginia Tech the rest of the year because if defenses start keying in on that main receiver – and Ryan Willis can't look him off, he's going to continue to turn the football over. So keep an eye on that. But with that being said, Ryan Willis did make some good plays as well. He had four touchdown passes, 344 yards through the air. Virginia Tech's rushing offense continues to be an issue, and this kind of speaks to the lack of identity I just mentioned again, where it's clear that Brad Cornelson wants to run a spread offense in which you know you pound the ball at an alarming rate, uh, but at the same time, he still wants to open it up and, and play to Ryan Wallace's strengths. Well, in my opinion, he needs to go one of two ways here. He needs to either play to the strengths of his players, which is clearly in the receiving core, where they had seven different receivers and tight ends catch a pass um, on Saturday, including 10, 10 different players catch a pass, um, but seven in the receivers and tight ends group. And that does not include uh, Joey Damon Hazleton second team all ACC receiver last year who didn't play due, due to a hamstring injury. So you add him back into the fold, it just adds to the depth that Virginia Tech has at receiver. But if the Hokies are going to continue to turn the football over, or if they don't have the trust in Ryan Willis to continue to get the job done, and I think we'll see this in the coming weeks if you know he continues to have issues with turnovers, and Virginia Tech decides to turn to maybe Hendon Hooker, the backup, or Quincy Patterson, the four-star quarterback that everybody wants to see, they may want to just completely overhaul the offense from the sense of rely more heavily on a run option attack out of the spread than a pass option attack out of the spread, right? And play to the strengths of the quarterback that you have in the game. The running backs for Virginia Tech are not good enough at this point. And quite frankly, Joey, they haven't been since 2011 for Virginia Tech to pass the football and turn it over as poorly as they did on Saturday. They have five turnovers in total, if you include the punt return fumble, where you know, if you're going to go a different route at quarterback, you all of a sudden can't have the same offense where you're throwing the ball 47 times. Hendon Hooker is not that type of quarterback as a backup. Quincy Patterson, when in the game last year, wouldn't even attempt to pass because the coaching staff didn't trust him. So it's going to be a complete and total offensive overhaul if you go away from Ryan Willis. Now, if you keep Ryan Willis in, which is what I anticipate them doing, because I do think the turnovers were very uncharacteristic of Willis in the offense on Saturday, they need to focus more on passing the football a little bit more. And this run option with the quarterback and Ryan Willis, he's not a runner, Joey. I mean, he's able to scramble and fits and starts, but he is not the type of runner that Hendon Hooker or Quincy Patterson is. So you can't expect him to keep it on these quarterback reads and then take off and have the offense be successful from a rushing perspective as a quarterback. Brad Cornelson's relying too heavily on that from a rushing perspective right now with Ryan Willis as his quarterback. It just doesn't fit his skill set. So if you're going to continue to do that, right, Maybe just have more designed running plays out of your running backs, perhaps. Less onus on the quarterback and Ryan Wells to carry the football. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He had 13 carries for 13 yards on Saturday, Joey. just doesn't make sense. So it's an, a complete and total offensive lack of identity. Now, I did see some very good things out of the offense. I think if they clean up the turnovers, they'll be fine. And more importantly, Joey, on the defensive side, there were a lot of encouraging signs, right? The ability to stop the run, the ability to not – you know, fold up and, and pack your bag and go home, which is what we saw when things were going south in the second half of games last year. We did not see that on Saturday. In fact, we saw the defense make adjustments, hold, and then play much, much better in the second half. That's a very encouraging sign. Virginia Tech has an easy schedule. 
overall. So do I think they can get better? Yes. Do they have to take better care of the football? Yes. But more, most importantly, they have to figure out what they're going to do on offense, specifically a quarterback. You're keeping Willis in there. Less designed quarterback runs. It doesn't make sense. Rely more heavily on the rushing attack of your running backs um, because we know that Virginia Tech's not a strong running team. They haven't been in quite some time, but at least design running plays that might have a better chance at working than using your quarterback in Ryan Willis, who is not a runner by design, Joe. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that was my takeaway. thought Boston College played very well, specifically Boston College's front seven, the defense we talked about before the year. Didn't think the defense would be all that great considering what they've had in the past, but we thought they'd still be pretty good. I was actually really impressed with the Boston College front seven, Joey, and that might be just because Virginia Tech can't run the football. Um, but Boston College's defense, I thought, got after it a bit more than I was expecting. I thought it was an overall very strong showing and a very good conference win for the Eagles here on Saturday. Absolutely. No, I, I agree with that. I'm going to hit on a couple of the Virginia Tech things here in a minute, but I do want to get to the Boston College stuff first. A couple of things that stood out to me, I, I thought Anthony Brown looked pretty impressive passing, yep. you know, and, and I... I felt like I need to mention that because as much as I've given him grief and I'm not so sure how good of a passer he is, I thought he made some really good throws this yep. game. Um, he, he was on his game passing. And if, if you get more of this from Boston College, that's that vaunted passing attack that we've talked about has been missing from their offense yep. that would immediately make them one of the better teams in the ACC. Um, so credit to, uh, to Anthony Brown for that. I thought that was good. I thought he was helped out, Mike, because Boston College's play calling on offense I thought was a lot better. Yep. Which is this crazy thing that when you get rid of Scott Leffler, apparently your play calling gets better, it turns out. So uh, credit to Boston College for improving uh, play calling there on offense. Um, I, I was impressed as well with the Boston College front seven on defense. I thought they held up incredibly well, especially considering kind of what, what they lost and are having to replace here this year. So as Dan Rubin told us, I mean, there's never really a cause for concern with Boston College in that, that type of uh, area of the yep. field. So. Keep that in mind. I, I was impressed with Virginia Tech's ability to, s- to kind of slow down their rushing attack. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, they, they came away with 157 yards on the ground, but that was on 48 carries. And they, they, that was less than three and a half yards per carry, which when you're holding, holding A.J. Dillon to less than four yards per carry, you're doing something right. Yep. Um, so really good performance there. Anthony Brown, by the way, at 15 to 26 for 275 and two scores. Uh, so almost 20 yards of completion. Um, Zay Flowers, two catches for 91 yards. I mean, there was definitely some some passing goodness there from uh, from Boston College, which is nice. A lot of the notes I do have, though, here, Mike, are around Virginia Tech. And, and I felt like the Hokies were outcoached yep. in this game. I, I felt like where Boston College was having success uh, on offense was probably around some of the defensive play calling and, and some of those coaching elements. Same thing with the offensive line. I, I thought it was very questionable for Virginia Tech at times in this game. Um, yep. There was also a couple of special teams gaffes that Virginia Tech had that, I mean, very uncharacteristic of a Virginia Tech team. You know, you have to think that Frank Beamer was a little bit upset seeing that. But the other thing I had written down, and I know that you mentioned on Twitter at one point, was that Virginia Tech's late game clock management was really questionable here. Horrific. It was really questionable. And I, I went back and I watched that last sequence and I wrote down, so Virginia Tech down two scores. They're down 35-21 with about five minutes left. Ryan Willis converts a fourth and seven at the 34-yard line with four minutes and 45 seconds left. Um, so they're right on the edge of field goal territory. They have two timeouts, by the way. They convert a third down with about four minutes left. They convert a, a fail to convert a third and three with uh, three minutes and 15 seconds left. Finally, Virginia Tech does score a, a passing touchdown with about two minutes and 15 seconds left. It took them two and a half minutes 
to get 34 yards in a late game situation like that. They didn't use either of their timeouts. There was a lot of running the ball and, and kind of wasting a lot of time that went on. And that, it was just really mind boggling to me. It, it was like, I don't know what they're doing. And I know that yeah. was something that really bothered you as well about how they handled that. It did. I'm glad you brought that up because I went on a rant there a second ago where I covered a lot of ground but didn't cover that. I, I wrote an article about this for Tech Launchpad, the Virginia Tech site I write for. Um, Hall of Fame name, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, TechLunchpad.com. So go check that out. I wrote the the recap and I did touch on the um, on the play calling and um, and late game clock management issues, which have been prevalent um, throughout really the entirety of Justin Fuente's tenure at Virginia Tech. A lot of it has to do with his offensive coordinator, Brad Cornelson, you know, making the play calls. It's just like, you know, you see them down two scores and it was a little bit less than seven minutes ago. And, you know, you see the issues and what they're doing offensively, running the football and just lack of aware, situational awareness, I think, for the coaching staff. It just no sense of urgency by the offense to get to the line of scrimmage. It was no huddle, but they weren't in a hurry. And time's just continuing to click off, tick off the clock. And, you know, the defense played well on Saturday afternoon, but there comes a point in time where, like, you realize that, you know, if your defense has to make one stop when you – take that much time to score and there's only two and a half minutes to go. It's like, well, you save those two timeouts. Great. But you know, Boston college gets stopped on first down, gets stopped on second down. Then on third and 10, if your defense has a bad play and Boston college picks up a first down, the game's over. Well, that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. AJ Dillon took the handoff, went 11 yards, picked up the first down. Boston college takes two knees and the game's over. That's just way too much pressure to put on a defense that number one, we haven't seen enough out of, right? Like they weren't very good last year. They were great in the second half on Saturday, but it's one game. Like, you know what you have with this defense. It's a lot of guys returning from a year ago on a defense that Joey was one of the worst in the ACC. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot of pressure to put on a defense that really I, I don't have a whole lot of faith in. So I'm wondering if the coaching staff has a whole lot of faith in that defense as well. But it just seems like they have lack of faith in their quarterback, Ryan Willis, um, in the late game drive, which, hell, Joey, at that point, he turned the ball over four times already. If you're leaving in there, you clearly have lack of trust in his backups as well. You might as well just start slinging it. You're down two scores anyway. What's the, what's the conservative play calling for? Why are you running the football? Just throw the football. I mean, at that point, the alternative to throwing the ball is running it. And, man, if you trust your running game more than Ryan Willis at this point, I have bad news for you because that running game did not look good at all uh, yep. at all on Saturday. Um as yep. much as Boston College's running game was held in check, I mean, Virginia Tech finishes 42 carries for 98 yards, less than two and a half yards per carry. They, they, This has been a, an ongoing theme, I feel like, with Virginia Tech's offense the last few years is that there is not that much of a credible rushing threat in, in this offense most of the time. There's, there's occasionally games where it pops up and it, it'll work, but in a lot of cases it has not been good. Um, yep. And once again, I mean, you, you saw how effective Boston College's front was at stopping it you know, all day. So – I don't know what the thinking is there. I don't get it. And I, I totally understand the frustration with Brad Cornelison making some of those calls is like this. You're supposed to play to your strengths. And as much as you may not trust your passing game at all times, you should have more faith in that than your running game, because that's yep. definitely, definitely a problem. But there's too much, there's too much pressure, Joey. Just one last point. There's too much pressure at this point on the quarterback position for the Virginia tech offense to be successful. Like Ryan Willis needs to be almost perfect right now um, because you don't trust the running game. And, 
we're not really sure how much he should even trust the defense. So the quarterback needs to play an almost perfect game. And I think the play calling is setting him up more for failure than success. And I think that's the biggest thing and the biggest problem for Virginia Tech moving forward. But there were a lot of good things. So I do think if they clean up the turnovers, they will be fine and they will be much better than last year. But there were some troubling trends coming out of Saturday that were very similar to last year that, make, that should make you concerned as a Virginia Tech Hokies fan like myself. Tend to agree. Tend to agree. We'll have to keep an eye on the play calling as, as that goes on. It yep. seems like it hadn't really gotten a whole lot better the last couple of years. So Definitely not. Keep monitoring it. Uh, Boston College 35, Virginia Tech 28. We do need to keep moving here, Mike. North Carolina 24, South Carolina 20 in a game that we we agreed with Lauren Brown. Though, this is a game that send, tends to not really behave, quote-unquote. This game did not behave. And speaking of teams that aren't who we thought they were, North Carolina coming out just winning this game on the field as a uh, like a 10-point underdog. They ran for 238 yards in this this game. They ran for almost as many yards as they threw for, which is not what Phil Longo's calling card has been in, in years at uh, Ole Miss. I was really – I feel like, Mike, this game, this game has to be a referendum on one of these teams. I'm just not exactly sure which one it is because as much as North Carolina looked really good at times, and I was really impressed with North Carolina's defense – South Carolina might also be bad. Right. Like, senior quarterback Jake Bentley goes 16 of 30 for 142, a touchdown and two picks. He was not good in this game. Uh, Tavian Feaster, 13 carries, 72 yards and a touchdown. He was okay. I, I We're going to have to come back to this here in about six weeks and figure out, is North Carolina really actually pretty good? Or is South Carolina just like falling apart and might be seeing this, the beginning of the end of the Will Moss-Champ era? True. Um, yeah, great question. I mean, those are two questions. And, and look, I mean, you, you look at, you know, teams as a whole after week one, there's a lot of overreactions and a lot of, you know, questions that we don't necessarily have the answer to right now. And I think that, you know, the stats of these two teams is obviously one of them. Uh, or both of them, I guess, whatever. Um, Sam Howell, <laughs> the, the one thing I, I can take away is Sam Howell, the uh, four-star quarterback for North Carolina, true freshman, uh, he's going to be pretty good. Um, yeah, I think he already is pretty good. 15 to 24 for 245 and two touchdowns. And even more than the stats, Joey, his complete command of the offense and the confidence they played with getting his team to the line, um, you know, just his mannerisms and how he was reacting to in-game situations and his leadership. You can just tell he's got complete command of the offense. He's going to be very good. And he had a very good showing in this opener. and He's only going to get better from here. That was the one obvious thing to me. The other thing for North Carolina is we talked about Michael Carter and his ability as a running back, but we didn't really talk about Javante Williams leading up to the season. Javante Williams, 18 carries, 102 yards. Michael Carter, 16 carries, 77 yards in this game. If they start getting a two-headed rushing attack, Joey, Man, oh, man. It's like the throwback to the Elijah Hood era, right, where North Carolina is all of a sudden mm-hmm. establishing themselves on the ground with a really competent quarterback. And back when that was the case for North Carolina, we're talking in the Trubisky and Marquise Williams era. Like, North Carolina tends to be pretty good and a player in the Coastal. And the coaching was a whole lot better, right, than we've seen in, in recent years. I thought Mac Brown, his staff, did an excellent job preparing for this Carolina team, exposing their weaknesses. And Jake Bentley had a lot of trouble throwing the football mm-hmm. in this game. And, you know, we mentioned North Carolina secondary could be pretty good. And that turned out to be the case as well. So, yeah, I mean, North Carolina looked good. South Carolina could end up being pretty bad. I, I don't know if North Carolina 
is like a seven or eight win team or anything like that. But can they get to bowl eligibility? Something that I didn't necessarily expect coming to the year. I mean, they look like being coached well enough too. That's for sure. Like the Mac Brown effect is real and it's making a difference. Like he can coach. Um, and they seem to have something in their quarterback, Sam Howell. So whether or not this is successful this year throughout the course of the year or, you know, with, throughout the next couple of years as they continue to develop, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But I, I was very impressed by North Carolina and just how they played and the confidence they played with. It's something that we haven't seen in the, in the final few years of the Fedora era, but something that we saw Saturday out of Mac Brown. And um, I think this North Carolina team can end up being a little bit better than I thought anyway. Yeah, this was a comeback win for UNC, by the way. Um, middle of the third quarter, South Carolina is up 20-9, to nine, and North Carolina goes and rips off, what is that, 15 straight points to win 24-20, um, scoring a couple of touchdowns there. And, and, I mean, I just – it's impressive to me that yep. you hold South Carolina to, what, 61 total plays on offense and less than 300 yards of offense. I mean, that's, that's a, a team, again, with a senior quarterback that we've all kind of – had some level of belief in in the last couple of years. Um, I, I don't think that South Carolina is the type of team that you expect to light up scoreboards anywhere, but man, like the way that North Carolina was able to contain their offense is, is really impressive to me. Um, and definitely North Carolina got some explosiveness out of their own offense as well. Um, I thought that was a really good showing. Um, I, yeah, I don't know what to say here, Mike. I'm, I'm impressed with what North Carolina did here and getting this win that, I didn't really think they were going to win. I think I had South Carolina against the spread in our picks uh, last week. And so yep. uh, for North Carolina to just win this game on the field like that, that's impressive. That's a, that's a really strong start to the Mac Brown era. Um, it, it's interesting, too, to me because that's this team was like the exact opposite of the Larry Fedora teams we've been seeing the last couple of years. They weren't throwing the ball that much on offense. They ran the ball. They ran the hell out of the ball on offense, and they played pretty good defense. Yep. Which is like – the exact opposite of the North Carolina we've gone to gotten to know and love over the last couple of years. So polar opposite, polar opposites for sure. Um, by the way, North Carolina's leading tackler in this game, your boy Chaz Surratt. Hello, Chaz Surratt, former quarterback, coming in with twelve tackles in this game. Not bad. So uh, he played well. He yeah, played well. Absolutely. He he's found his home, as uh, most quarterbacks don't tend to at linebacker. But in any case. Uh, I don't have anything else on this game, Mike. Anything else for you? No, I think we're good. North Carolina 24, South Carolina 20. Let's move on. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Virginia 30, Pittsburgh 14. Um, this game was kind of interesting for a couple of ways. I I came away with this from this game, Mike, thinking, I think Virginia is just kind of a better version of Pittsburgh. Yep. Like, basically, like, they, they try to do a lot of the same things, and Virginia just did them better. Bryce Perkins, I thought, was better than than Kenny Pickett, throwing and running the ball. Um, the front sevens for both of these teams looked pretty good. And, and honestly, I was impressed with Pitt's defense in this game in a lot of ways. Um, they had a lot of good moments with the exception of a few pass interferences. Um, I this is These teams, are, I think, are who I thought they were. Put it that way. I think they are who I thought they were. Yeah, that, that's fair. Virginia is a much better version of Pittsburgh where – 
we talked about the high floor, but we don't really know the ceiling. I think that's where we're at with Virginia. I think they have a very high floor. They're going to be very good, right? But are they going to be great is another thing. And like there are some teams in the in the coastal. I, well, I don't even I can't even talk about Virginia Tech in that light after what I just saw. But Miami is a team that has a very high ceiling, a ceiling that at its best, you know, with the athletes that they have, could potentially at least hold it semi-close with Clemson for a little bit mm-hmm. in, in a conference championship game. Like, I don't think Virginia has that kind of ceiling. Like, I'm not expecting Virginia to go into the ACC championship game and not get blown out. Whereas if Miami was playing at their best, all things were clicking, there's potential there for Miami not to get completely embarrassed in Charlotte. So Virginia has the highest floor in the division. That's something you brought up multiple times um, throughout our, our preview season. Um, high floor, not a really high ceiling. Their offense is like good enough to get it done because their defense plays very well. Virginia is almost a better version of like Boston college too. Like I put Mm -hmm. like Pitt and Boston college in that same category where like, you know, they're going to run the ball. Well, um, Boston college has had a better defense more historically, but like Pittsburgh's been coming around the last couple of years defensively. Um, and, and I was like, you know, much like you just mentioned, I was impressed with Pittsburgh's defense as well on Saturday. I, th- I thought they held Virginia in check for the most part, but Virginia's defense, I mean, I just suffocated Kenny Pickett, forced tur- like very timely turnovers. Uh, Bryce Perkins was relatively efficient. Um, I-, I was just more impressed with Virginia than Pitt. I mean, it really was as simple as that. Just a gritty road win in conference play. You go on the road as a two-and-a-half-point favorite. You win by 16. I mean, it was a pretty dominant second half by Virginia on the defensive side. Kenny Pickett, man, he leaves a ton to be desired, though. Oh, man, just not not great. Not great. Um, he threw a pair but, of horrible interceptions. Awful. Couldn't, couldn't have happened. I mean, not that there's any, like, real good time for a pick, but he threw two really, really costly interceptions that cost Pitt the game. Um, talk about Ryan Wells turning mm-hmm. the ball over at inopportune times. Man, there were a couple that Kenny Pickett threw that was like, man, time and place, dude. Um, mm-hmm. But those were those were awful. But anyway, yeah, good win for Virginia to start off the year. Um, as a preseason coastal favorite, you don't want to lay an egg in the opener. And they went on the road and took it to Pittsburgh in the second half. It was it was pretty impressive to watch defensively, I think, more than anything else for Virginia. I felt like this game was kind of the epitome of what Kenny Pickett has been. Um, almost on like a drive-by-drive basis. Like Kenny Pickett came out and would just throw some crazy passes that were you know really good and just on target and in tight windows and all this stuff. And then the next drive he comes out and he's just sailing the ball over people's heads and throwing inaccurate stuff and made, like, making a couple of terrible decisions on these interceptions. Like it, there was good Kenny Pickett and bad Kenny Pickett all within the same game and, and occasionally just like drive by drive, right? The two interceptions he threw, one is it was thrown basically right at a linebacker that was underneath the uh, was under the underneath the receiver that was being kind of double covered and just threw it right at a linebacker. The other one it was intercepted by a guy and the, and the, the announcers made the, made the comment. It's like, well, if it hadn't been intercepted by the first guy, it was probably going to be intercepted by another guy. Like he was trying to thread it through a, a ridiculous little window that made no sense. So I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't love the inconsistency from Kenny Pickett and, and it, it's continued to bother me. And I, I don't know what they're going to really be able to accomplish with Mark Whipple as their offensive coordinator. If he's not going to be more consistent and, and give us more consistently good Kenny Pickett. So we'll have to see, um, Pitt really had a rough time running the ball in this game. Um, 30 carries for 78 yards. And, and I mean, that's not a great sign. But then again, Virginia's defense looked pretty good as well. So credit them for that. 
Um, Maurice Fafrench was, I thought, pretty strong in this game. Um, he, he is, again, a, a pretty clear bright spot on Pittsburgh's offense. So keep getting the ball to him and Taysier Mack. Um, those, those are your, your two primary skill guys, I think, that need to get the ball. Maybe a little bit of A.J. Davis, too. So go there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mike, I think that's all I've got here. We need to probably keep moving here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Let's move on. Uh, Virginia 30, Pittsburgh 14. Let's move on to what would have maybe been one of the games of the week in terms of excitement and, and kind of fun to watch in the, in the ACC. Wake Forest 38, Utah State 35. This was a hell of a game on Friday night. Um, this is an absolute treat. And we we mentioned in this preview that Utah State is not going to mess around. Like, they're nope. a good football team. Um, Jordan Love was a bag of all sorts of excitement. Uh, 33 of 48, 416, three touchdowns, three picks. Um, so... <laughs> There was a lot going on there, but uh, Jamie Newman was outstanding for Wake Forest, I thought. Cade Carney was really good. He had a lot of uh, run, and don't look now, but your boy Sage Surratt, seven catches, 158 yards, and a touchdown. Ball player. Yeah, this was this was a game that Wake could have easily lost, and I don't think we would have thought much worse for him for. Uh, but they, they ended up getting it done and, and pulling out the win at the end. You talk about Jordan Love being just – a total adventure at quarterback. Um, mm-hmm. Jordan Love is is very good, much better than Ryan Willis. But when I looked at the Virginia Tech game, I was watching that on Saturday. I couldn't help but think back to what I had just watched on Friday night in this game where there was so much opportunity for better play, right? And Jordan Love just turned the ball over three times, and they were crucial, crucial, crucial interceptions in this game that ultimately decided the outcome. Um Jamie Newman, really, really good for Wake Forest, 401 yards, three touchdowns. He was a stud all night. Cade Carney, 25 carries for 105 yards. Really impressed with the Wake Forest rushing attack, Joey. The running game looked real good. I was impressed with the Wake Forest offensive line as well. You mentioned Sage Surratt, but how about Kendall Hinton? Uh, Slot Mm -hmm. receiver, finally healthy, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Quarterback turned receiver, nine catches, 66 yards, and a touchdown. He was really good. Scotty Washington. He had a couple of really crucial drops early in this game, but he made up for it, had a really, really nice touchdown catch, uh, won a 50-50 ball uh, that was a huge play in the game for Wake Forest. So he was able to make up for a couple drops he had early on. Just a gritty, gritty win for Wake Forest. Um, Defensively, they weren't great, but they were able to turn over Utah State at a couple of really crucial times, like I mentioned. And that was a big takeaway for me. You know, the rushing defense and the passing defense, neither was very good for Wake Forest. Uh, but the fact that they were able to bend but not break in really, really crucial situations in this football game ended up deciding the outcome. So, you know, Wake Forest certainly needs to improve on defense, but it's clear their offense is going to be able to score some points. I think that's the biggest takeaway. Wake Forest is going to be one of those sneaky teams in the Atlantic where if their defense plays well enough and they continue to get that production on offense, it can end up being a pretty good team this year. By the way, that touchdown that uh, Kendall Hinton scored, that was Fourth and goal with about a minute left as a game winner. Mike, that was big time. What a moment. What a moment. Jamie Newman completing a touchdown pass to Kendall Hinton, quarterback to old quarterback oh, yeah. um, to win the game. So uh, this game, by the way, had approaching 1,200 yards of offense. Um, I mean, this was a, a this is, looked like a big 12 game. So if, if that's your uh, style of football game, see if you can find a replay and go watch it because this is this was a lot of fun to watch. Just up and down the field all night. It was, uh, it was back and forth. It was very back and forth. Um, yeah, Wake, I think this looks really good for Wake's offense moving forward. I am still kind of concerned about their defense. I, we saw some improvement oh, yeah. down the stretch last year, but I don't know how much we're going to keep seeing that improved defense. Um, so we'll see as they play teams that maybe have not quite as high-powered of offenses as Utah State has, which 
again, I, I keep telling you, if, if you're sitting here saying, oh, it's some, you know, directional Utah team, like who, who the hell is that? Utah State's good. This is a good win for Wake Forest. Um, for sure. This is a good win. So, um, yeah, good on them for uh, ripping off a bunch of yards here in this game. Yeah, Joey, real quick, I was talking up Wake Forest on social media. I said, yo, we were trying to tell you about Wake Forest, and there were people in my mentions saying, oh, it's Utah State. Like, Utah State's not a really good football program. That's how you can tell who's, like, really paying attention to college football as a whole mm-hmm. or just paying attention to their particular team. Yeah. Like, Utah State's been good for a while. Like, they had a coaching change, but Jordan Love's an NFL quarterback. Like, they're a very, very good football team in the group of five. So that's mm-hmm. a big-time win for Wake Forest in the opener. I think they were 11-2 and two last year, maybe 10-3, and three, yep. something like that. I mean – Yeah, they were good. Double-digit win team. Um, yeah. And it's a new coaching staff, but – Gary Anderson's been there before. He has a penchant for losing really close games, but he's a pretty good coach. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so Utah State's good. That's just something to me- mention. Like, this is a big win for Wake Forest in the non-conference play. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's keep moving here. 38-35, Wake Forest over Utah State. Uh, let's talk about my Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, and more importantly, the number one Clemson Tigers, Mike. Oh, yeah. uh, Clemson 52, Georgia Tech 14. This game basically went the way that we thought it did, or thought it would on Thursday night. Uh, Georgia Tech kind of kind of hung in there for a little bit, and then Clemson eventually just overwhelms them pretty pretty significantly. Yeah, um, yep. Um, Travis Etienne, 12 carries, 205 yards, and three touchdowns, Joey. Um, including a 90-yard touchdown run. Yeah, uh, ball game. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Lynn J. Dixon, eight carries, 64 yards, and a touchdown. Trevor Lawrence had a touchdown run. My one takeaway for Clemson, like, I didn't really learn anything about either one of these teams in this game. Like, Georgia Tech's going to play hard under Jeff Collins. Jeff Collins is fitting a scheme around the players that he has on the roster currently. You saw a lot of um, a lot of option plays out of shotgun, kind of in a different look, out of the pistol a couple times. Like, we saw option concepts, which didn't really surprise me, right, considering what Georgia Tech has on the roster. So, that was nice to see how Jeff Collins just kind of fitting the scheme for this year around the players. We know he doesn't want to run the option, but he knows that's where the strengths of this team are just considering the roster composition. So they tried really hard <laughs> against the Clemson defense that, Hey, they're going to be pretty good again. Um, pretty solid mm-hmm. defense. My um, one takeaway for Clemson that, that surprised me a little bit, Trevor Lawrence didn't really look all that sharp. Um, and, some credit, I think, is deserved for the Georgia Tech defense. They were swarming at times, and, and I thought they played hard and, and pretty well. But Trevor Lawrence, even when he wasn't pressured, just missed on a couple of out routes, some routes in the middle of the field he missed high on, which is a little troubling. You don't like to see that. Uh, missing high in the middle of the field, that usually leads to turnovers. But Lawrence was 13 of 23, 168, a touchdown and two picks. It just did not look very good. And, and, you know, I think he's a little bit rusty. I think he'll be fine, and he'll be very good throughout the rest of the season. He's the best quarterback in the ACC still. Um, but he just didn't look great, just a little bit rusty. Um, and I think it hurt the Clemson passing offense. But when you score 52 points, there's re- you know I feel like you're just kind of nitpicking at that point. So good win for Clemson. And yeah. um, Georgia Tech's going to play hard on Jeff Collins. I don't know how many wins it's going to end up being for Georgia Tech this year, but they're at least going to play hard. They will. Um, and honestly, I saw what I thought were some bright spots, and it's it's kind of hard to take away a lot of positives from a game where you lose by 38, and it's um, it's never really even particularly close. But what I thought I saw was some, some good moments from the defense. I mean, the, they forced a three and out on Clemson in the first drive of the game, and then Clemson punted and Georgia Tech dropped the punt, and Clemson scores a sh- on a short field after that. You know, But 
you started out with some tackles for loss. There was some good aggression on defense. I, I liked what I saw scheme-wise from, from Georgia Tech's defense. I thought that was pretty encouraging. Um, they, I thought they were pretty effective at running the ball. I was surprised at how effective they were at running the ball. Um, sure, I mean, you you're have been traditionally a run-based team in, in the past several years, but like you're going to get to Clemson defense that you haven't had a whole lot of success running the ball against, even when that was your bread and butter. So I thought that was good to see. Um, I, generally, again, there were some positives here. I thought Jordan Mason looked really good. I thought Trey Swilling had a really nice interception of, of Trevor Lawrence that he almost ran all the way back. Um, and then you got some, you know, he got tackled at like the two yard line and then there were some goal line shenanigans and Georgia Tech didn't score. Um, there were definitely some issues in this game. Throwing the ball was not, um, was not a popular thing, I guess, for Georgia Tech. They only threw 18 passes to 45 run plays, which kind of had me scratching my head just a little bit um Tobias Oliver did not look good throwing the ball um he threw a pair of interceptions that were fairly rough uh, I was surprised we didn't see any more of Lucas Johnson in this game I I don't know I really thought he was going to start the game and it was Tobias and then I really thought maybe after a few drives they'd try Lucas and then it was like the very end of the first quarter before we or the end of the first half before we saw him and then we did see him for like a drive and then we never saw him again I don't know. There was some there was some strangeness I thought on offense for Georgia Tech at times with kind of how some of the play calls worked and, and the the reluctance to to pass and at least kind of get some reps in and, and try it at times. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, Clemson looked really good in this game. I thought that you know the the, the Travis Etienne ninety yard touchdown run that everybody was showing after the game. I mean, it was a really good run. It was it was kind of a result of him breaking a couple tackles and a couple tech defenders taking terrible routes. And next thing you know, he was off to the races. Um, he's too good to let those things happen again. So, you know, I, it is what it is. Um, I, I saw a couple of people on Twitter after the game that were talking about how, well, this isn't any better than the Paul Johnson era. Like, you know, Ridiculous. maybe we should have just kept him. Jeff Collins is no good, blah, 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 blah. At which point. How do they know? Delete, how do they know? Delete your account. Yeah. Delete your account. This is, you know. Not not the uh, not the time, not the place. Also, not not even really good analysis here. So, um, in any case, uh, also our thick punting boy Presley Harvin looked really good in this game. Keep that in mind. So there was there was a bright spot there too. Um, yeah, not a lot to be taken from this game in general. I think um, Clemson probably trying not to show too much with uh, a big game here on deck with Texas A and M and Georgia Tech. I don't even know how much this offense that they showed us on Thursday night is going to be indicative of what they show against other teams. Um, and we're right. about to talk about another game where I think you could say that, you know, just knowing that there was such an overwhelming talent kind of disparity, I, I'll be surprised if we have more games this year, Mike, where it's like 20 passes and 45 rushes. I, I tend to think this offense is going to be a little more balanced than that, but we'll have to find out, I guess. Um, yep, any, sure. Anything else before we move on? I think we're good, man. Clemson 52, Georgia Tech 14. Uh, another blowout game here, number two, Alabama 42, Duke 3. Um, this game basically was what we thought it was, at least in the second half. Um, Duke kept this thing close for a while. It was 14-3 to at halftime. It was scoreless after one quarter. Um, Alabama struggled at times on offense in the first half. Duke's defense looked really good um, for, for at times. Um, Quentin Harris looked okay. And they even came out running some like classic flex bone triple option. Did Duke, which caught a lot of people off guard and I don't know if that's a thing they just installed because it's worked on Alabama in the past or if that's actually going to be a thing moving forward with Quentin Harris and his skill set. But kind of an intriguing game to watch. But ultimately, I mean, Duke was unable to do much of anything on offense as we kind of thought, and Alabama just kind of ran away with it. 
Yeah, just a couple takeaways. You mentioned the Duke option rushing attack. You literally texted me and you're like, what is happening? Duke is now an option team. <laughs> and it really helped <laughs> that way. Um, whatever works against Alabama, uh, or at least you tried, right? Um, Duke's rushing defense was pretty strong. Uh, it was clear early on Alabama wanted to try to establish the run. Uh, they knew they could throw all over Duke, and that's what they did in the second half to pull away. But, you know, they wanted to try to establish the run. They had a lot of trouble doing so. Um, Jerome Ford, 10 carries, 64 yards, a touchdown. Najee Harris, 12 carries, 52 yards. He's very, very good. <laughs> um, Alabama as a whole, though, 42 carries, 145, and two touchdowns. So credit to the Duke defense for making it difficult on Alabama to run the ball. But once Alabama decided to open up and start throwing in the second half, the game was over. Uh, Tua went 26 of 31 for 336 and four touchdowns. So he was pretty flawless in the passing game. Um, and, and I think we kind of figured that that would be the case once they did decide to start to throw. Um, Nick Saban didn't seem too angry going into halftime. He was interviewed by ESPN and just didn't really seem too upset with how things were going. Because I think he knew the game plan was, hey, we're going to try to establish the run. And we know that Duke can't really score on us. So we're just going to try some things here and, you know, not show too much. And in the second half, they said, OK, let's just open things up and blow this thing out. Right. <laughs> blow them out of the stadium. And that's what they did. Um, Duke just couldn't get anything going on offense. Um, not really a referendum on them. Alabama's defense is far superior. And Duke couldn't get anything going on offense. So. I don't know, good win for Alabama. Jerry Judy is an absolute freak at receiver. 10 carries, 137, and a touchdown. He had a couple plays that I saw where he was just taking a route, a short route in the middle of the field and spinning off defenders and breaking it for like 15 or 20 yards on a five-yard route. He just, just, just does that so consistently. It's really incredible to watch. One of the few mm -hmm. receivers I've seen in college football over the last, I don't know, five or nine years that has that kind of ability to break literally any play. Um, that the ball is in his hands. So he's just an outstanding player and really impressed with him. Just a really talented Alabama receiving core. But yeah, 42 to three, not a whole lot to see here, Joey. Yeah, Duke only a shade over 200 yards of offense. Um, not ideal. Only 11 first downs the entire game. They did go, they did rush for over 100 yards, which is nice. But I think the only other bright spot, kind of as you mentioned, Duke's front seven did a really nice job against Alabama's offensive line for a while. And Alabama struggled to, to establish the run in this game, which you know, if you're if you're looking at the overall landscape of college football, keep an eye on that. You know, as the as the year goes on, because that is very uncharacteristic of an Alabama team, and and maybe it is that Duke's defense is particularly good here, but probably cause for concern if you're Alabama that you couldn't establish the run against Duke, and knowing what you got coming up in terms of all the teams in your division and such that you're going to have to beat moving forward. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Alabama forty-two, Duke three. Two more here, Mike. Uh, number 22, Syracuse, 24, Liberty, nothing. Um, was a little disappointed in Syracuse's offensive output here. Um, Tommy DeVito, under 50% completion, two picks, no touchdowns. Um, Syracuse, you know, runs for almost 200 yards, which is nice, and three scores. So that was, that was pretty good. But really, I think the story of the, of the day probably has to be Syracuse's defense, pitching a shutout here against Liberty and um, – holding Liberty to negative four yards on the ground, which also involved like eight sacks on Stephen Calvert. And um, really, I think ultimately the story of the day was that Hugh Freeze was coaching this game for Liberty from his hospital bed above yep. the stadium. Yeah. So there was a lot of weirdness here. But yeah, ultimately Syracuse pitches a shutout and wins pretty comfortably here, 24 to nothing. Yeah, Hugh Freeze had like a staph infection that could have been, I guess, life-threatening a week ago. And so the Dockers didn't really want him 
I I don't even know. He was coaching from a hospital bed from the press box, but looked like he was in good health. It was just uh, so weird. It's just so strange. Um, Hugh Freeze is literally sitting in shorts and a Liberty polo and a visor, chilling out in the press box. And after the game, <laughs> we got Dino Babers waving to the press box. It became a, a meme on social media. He's like waving to the press box. And Hugh Freeze is like waving him back saying, good job. Then Hugh Freeze conducted his press conference from a video. It was like video conferencing with reporters. I don't know what was happening. Actually, our buddy, <laughs> our buddy Justin Cates also, I don't know if you saw this, Joey, on Twitter. He goes, is Hugh Freeze drinking a beer while doing this press conference? What's going on? <laughs> it ended up being it ended up being a Coke Zero, but from the angle initially, it looked like he had a bottle of beer in his hands that he was drinking while doing the press conference with reporters over video chat. It was just such a strange dynamic. That was the biggest takeaway for me. Like, Tommy DeVito didn't look very good. I think he'll be fine, ultimately. And, like, Liberty played hard and everything like that. But that was just such a weird – it was just college football's back. I don't know what else to say. This is a very college football game. Yes. Very college football. In Lynchburg, Virginia, um, as it turns out. Lynchburg, Virginia, of all places, yeah. Um yeah, I don't know what to take away from this. Uh, Syracuse, not particularly sharp. Ten penalties for close to 100 yards, not great. Three turnovers, not great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that this game was never really in doubt. Um, but at the same time, I mean, kind of would have liked to see a little bit more of a crisp performance from Syracuse. So really going to need to see Tommy DeVito bounce back here in the next couple of weeks as they um, face somewhat more formidable opponents in Maryland and then this startup team called Clemson. Yep. Um, so we'll we'll see if Tommy DeVito can uh, learn something from this game. But in any case, yeah, no uh, no shortage of weirdness here. Syracuse twenty four, Liberty nothing. Last one, Mike. NC State thirty four, East Carolina six. Uh, East Carolina, not Eastern Carolina. Um, really, just a, a ho hum good performance from NC State. Matthew McKay twenty five of thirty seven for three hundred eight, a touchdown. Um, NC State ran the ball particularly well, 31 carries for 191 and three scores. Um, really a, a pretty – just a good performance by by them, and, and the defense looks reasonably well you – know, reasonably good as well. Um, I, I Only good things to say here about NC State. Yeah, I mean, my biggest takeaway from this game was Matthew McKay. Um, weren't really sure what to expect out of him. I mean, we thought he'd be pretty good, but he comes in and 25-37, 308 and a touchdown, just took care of the ball, was really efficient. Um, NC State did a pretty decent job running the football. They ran it with a bunch of different guys, but ended up with 31 carries for 191 yards and three touchdowns as a team, um, you know, averaging 6.2 yards per carry, which I thought was positive. And more than anything else, I think East Carolina is still really bad. So NC State overwhelmed them defensively. I thought that was clear. So again, one of these games where there weren't a ton of takeaways for, for me, at least from a conference-wide perspective, and how NC State's going to kind of fit into the fold in the Atlantic the rest of the year, but I think there were certainly some encouraging signs, especially with the way that Matthew McKay played a quarterback. Absolutely, absolutely. I think so. Um, still curious to see how they continue building, moving through the year, but, you know, I mean, I think this is a reasonably good sign, you know, for first game with a new quarterback, and again, all this rebuilding they've had to do on offense, so... Um, Good on you. Uh, by the way, the thing that we didn't notice here, and we forgot to mention in the in the pregame, uh, Mike Houston came out and made a couple of interesting comments before this game was talking about how last year was fifty eight to three, and how this year it's it's going to be a lot closer than that. And it was thirty four six is close, but he basically said like, uh, "Yeah, we're going to cover the spread here. Go ahead and bet that." 
which a coaches actively acknowledging the spread and, and promising to bet it is, is fantastic. And I love that B they did not cover. So hopefully nope, you did, they not, did not, hopefully they tried, they tried. Hopefully you did not take Mike Houston's advice that we did not mention before and uh, did not bet this spread with East, East Carolina because they did not cover the 17 or whatever. Um, this was not that, not that close of a game. So definitely not. Uh, NC State 34, East Carolina 6. Mike, that's all we got for games to recap. You want to give out a couple of awards? Have to, man. Let's do it. First ones of the year. Um, as as before, we, we have the Go ACC moment of the week. And this came from that aforementioned Florida State-Boise State game. I mean, I, I think probably the, the most distinctly rough moment of the game was for Florida State. It was late in the third quarter. Um Boise State going in, they got a, I think they've got a, a first down. They ran a play for a first down and fumbled the ball after um, kind of getting past the marker. Two Florida State players go for the ball. It's right between the two of them. One of them tries to dive on it. The other one tries to pick it up and run with it. Neither one comes away with it. Boise State recovers and then immediately scores the go-ahead touchdown that ended up being the game winner. Yeah, not great. Um, Not that's a good look. basically the, basically the opposite of what you wanted to do. And we didn't mention this when we were just recapping the game a couple minutes ago, cause we were saving it for, uh, the go ACC moment of the week, of course. Um, yeah, that was brutal. Not great. And, um, you know, Florida state trying to pick up that ball and run with it too. It's like, you know, you're, you're on like three or four yard line, just dive on it. Right. Um, as a Florida state fan, I just can't even imagine how angry, um, that, that made you feel, but I mean, it irritated me watching the game, and I don't really care if Florida State wins or not. I'm sitting there watching. I'm like, yo, just be smarter, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, brutal, brutal play that ended up setting up the go-ahead touchdown for Boise State. Just not a great look in week one for Willie Taggart there. As a veteran football player myself who played uh, one year of football in, in fifth grade, we were in very intentionally coached. If there's a fumble, just jump on it. Just yep. jump on it. Don't try to pick it up and run with it. Just jump on it and fall on it. So. Um, I'll see if Florida State needs to talk to my fifth grade football coach about kind of what to do when the ball's on the ground. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, yeah, if you just jump on it, Florida State might not lose that game. They might not. I mean, the fact that they didn't dive, they didn't dive on it sets up the go-ahead touchdown. I mean, you don't know what Boise State's going to do offensively, right? They've been kind of mm-hmm. up and down all day. They had played better in the second half. But, I mean, setting up any team with a short field and giving them an opportunity like was presented to them, um, just not good. Yeah. Not good at all. That was rough. So go ACC to you, Florida State. Um, and by the way, Mike, we're going to keep going here with the Brian Van Gorder Memorial. You tried award, the initial one from 2019. I think we got to stay with Florida State here. Oh, uh, yes. that's right. Yeah, so <clears throat> Florida State's offense. Joey, where should we begin here? Probably not in the about- first half. The first half was fine, I thought. Real good. Actually, it was real good <laughs> considering what we saw last year. Sure. Um, 31 points in the first half for Florida State. I alluded to this earlier, but the Brian Van Gorder Memorial You Tried Award goes to Florida State's second half offense. 29 plays, 61 yards, a multitude of three and outs, multiple penalties. <sighs> Man. They ran 29 plays to- and had four first downs. It gets to the point where you really wonder, like, you know, whether or not the same team came out of the locker room offensively in the second half. It was like a tale of two completely different games, Joey. Um, rough. Real rough. Um, 
I guess we can just give it to the Florida State offense as a whole and maybe just to Kendall Bryles in general with play calling. Like, dude, you turned in Scott Leffler in the second half. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Ooh, them's fighting words, Mike. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, so... Walt Bell, Florida is that State- you? Oh, God. <laughs> God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, yeah, Florida State, you tried to... Uh, to move the ball and give your defense any amount of rest in the second half and maybe be able to put the game away. And it didn't go great. So, you know, um, good on you. Good on you, I guess. I don't know. I guess. Yeah. You tried. Try again next week. Let's try again next week. Um, Mike, we have a couple of new features we we do want to add to the the end of these podcasts. We actually are are going to legitimately uh, give out a player of the week and a team of the week award each week in these podcasts. Uh, we'll start with the player of the week. I felt like that had to come from the Wake Forest-Utah State game. Jamie Newman was excellent for Wake Forest. Uh, he is our inaugural ACC player of the week this year. Yeah, 400 yards passing. Um, I guess 401 to be exact, three touchdown passes. A couple crucial plays late, that touchdown pass, obviously the game winner to Kendall Hinton was a huge play for the entirety of the ACC over the weekend. Um, a really big non-conference win for Wake Forest um, and, and really what was probably the biggest non-conference game um, of the weekend among ACC teams besides that Boise State-Florida State game we were just talking about. Um, so, yeah, just a really, really gutsy performance from Jamie Newman. I think he's the really the only choice uh, for player of the week, just the, the plays that he made down the stretch and, you know, having a having a couple of big-time moments there to win the game for Wake Forest and a really, really solid non-conference team um, against Utah State that they were able to come out on top of. So, uh, yeah, just a really gutsy performance from Jamie Newman. He's our uh, player of the week. Yeah, he was he was really great for Wake Forest in this game and, and a huge reason that they were able to, to pull that game out at the end. So um, congratulations to Jamie Newman, uh, official basketball conference ACC player of the week for uh, week one in 2019. Uh, team of the week, Mike, I think we got to give this to North Carolina. Yep. North Carolina pulling off that win that we really didn't think that they could. And in, in game one under a new coaching staff and all this against a much more established regime and a senior quarterback like South Carolina's got, um, huge, huge win for North Carolina, good win for the conference. And I think they've got to be our ACC team of the week. Yeah. I mean, unless Louisville upsets Notre Dame tonight, as we record here on Monday morning, um, yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's hard to pick anybody other than, uh, North Carolina. Like they haven't been good in a couple of years. We didn't really know what to expect. Like we thought they'd be better coach under Mac Brown, but to go out and beat South Carolina in non-conference opener is a huge game. We don't know how good South Carolina is going to be. Maybe they end up being pretty bad, but they're a team in the SEC East that is at least supposed to be competitive on paper uh, heading into the year, right? So, hey, as far as week one goes, it's a huge win for North Carolina. they got to be our team of the week, Joey. That's a huge win for uh, the ACC um, out of conference. I mentioned that Boise State-Florida State game and, and Wake and Utah State, but this North Carolina-South Carolina game was one that we thought could go sideways in the non-conference and it did and North Carolina being able to pull out a gutsy win there second half comeback too as good as as uh, Sam Howell looked at quarterback as a true freshman uh, they got to be our team of the week Joey just quite a performance for um, game one of Mac Brown's second era in North Carolina yeah it really was I, I was really impressed I was really surprised I, I thought they looked a lot better than I really expected them to so um, good on you North Carolina congratulations uh, big win big win um, Mike, 
I think that's all I got on week one. Do you have anything else before we uh, work on getting out of here? Yeah, pretty thorough recap. Um, you know, a bunch of really interesting games this weekend, but again, a lot went as expected, some unexpected, but a lot did go as expected. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it sets the primer here for the rest of the season. I think it'll be a very, very solid year um, of football, uh, good or bad. I think it'll at least be entertaining in the ACC. So let me ask you this before we get out of here. Um, this year was a little bit unique in that we had three different conference games um, that were played week one. Right. And, and a lot of that, I think, was t- trying to promote the launch of the ACC network and recognizing that your team came out on the business end of one of those games. And all, all being said, my team came out on the business end of, the, of another game. Like, do you feel like this was a good idea to put conference games week one that will potentially end up impacting the, the race as things go down? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think you might as well do that off off the jump, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's good. Uh, you know, you have a lot of situations where teams schedule poor non-conference opponents, and I think we see, you know, some very good conference games off the bat, and, you know, some teams going out of conference and playing some pretty good teams, in Wake's case with Utah State, North Carolina's case with South Carolina, Florida State obviously playing uh, the coined murder smurfs, <laughs> the group of five um, from from Pappen, of course, with uh, Stephen Godfrey at SB Nation or Banner Society, I guess, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think that having the conference games off the bat is a good thing for the ACC, like you mentioned, promoting the ACC network and things of that nature. Uh, I think it made sense to do that this year. I wouldn't be opposed to see that moving forward. I think it's good to have meaningful games off the jump anytime you can, whether it's in conference or out of conference. I think just having meaningful football being played in week one is is just really good for college football. So I'm with it, Joey. Um, I get there's, you know, one, you know, one prevailing thought out there where it's like, well, you're not going to get best out of all these teams in week one. I mean, yeah, that's true. But I think that's true of a bunch of teams across the conference, right? Um, you know, nobody's going to be at their best in week one. I think there's a lot to improve on in any season coming out of the first week of the year. So I'm good with having them right off the jump and just kind of having a measuring stick game and seeing where you're at, whether that's in conference or out of conference. But I especially like the fact that specific to the ACC and conference play as a whole, that you're having meaningful games in week one. I think it's really important. I don't really know how I feel about it. I, part of what bugs me is that there are three conference games week one. And then in week two, we've got one in week three, we've got, two and in week four we've got one again right yeah. so like it's it's a bunch of conference games week one and then not much for another three weeks meanwhile the teams that are not playing conference games are kind of getting those you know getting their feet under them kind of getting back in the rhythm of, of things and as we've seen in a, a number of these teams like you can get some sloppiness in week one that just comes from some rust and you know I, I i don't love that a couple of these teams are being subjected to games that are going to be really impactful in conference races. So again, I mean, Virginia Pitt and Boston College, Virginia Tech, if they turn around and play these games in four to six weeks, who knows if they play out the same way, right. you know, when, when, especially with Virginia Tech, like if they, if they were able to get some, some rhythm going right. And re- really kind of get some experience in the season and all that. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that I love it. I think it, it makes more sense when you have also, you've got like North Carolina playing South Carolina, you've got, Florida State playing Boise State, you know, other teams that are being challenged. But then again, there's NC State playing East Carolina and Syracuse playing Liberty and some of these that like, I don't know that I love it. You see what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, yep. I, I want to make sure that the, the results of the conference race are legitimate and not partially skewed by 
when some of these games are played, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I there's no wrong way of looking at this, to be honest with you. Um, I think it's just kind of total Yeah, it's definitely personal preference. Quite frankly. Yeah, so. All right. Well, I don't know if that's the plan for moving forward, but we'll have to see. Um, I, I, I tend to think it, it won't be a heavy in, uh, or a heavy, uh, blah, blah, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Emphasis, a heavy emphasis for the conference moving there forward. Is. But um, might, might see some of it, especially with the ACC network going on. So we'll see. Yep. Mike, let's get out of here. We got to go uh, come back and preview some games. But in the meantime, they can find us on Twitter. I am at FTRS Joey. He's at Mike McDaniel CFB. And together we're at BC Podcast ACC. Uh, y'all can send us an email with your questions, comments, concerns to the longest email address known to man, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. Thank you. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Breaker, Overcast, Spotify, uh, all these good places. And most importantly, you can find us on the Anchor app. So please go do that. Hit the subscribe button um, and, and make sure that your friends know where we are as well so that they can uh, make sure to catch up on all their bas- basketball conference podcast goodness. Uh, Mike, you want to tell them where they can find us on social medias? Yeah, uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash basketball conference, rate, review, find all of your podcasts there, Joey. Absolutely, please do. Uh, Mike, anything else before we get out of here? I'm really interested to see how Notre Dame plays tonight, Joey. Mm-hmm. Um, really interested to see that. Don't know how much I'll learn with them playing Louisville, but if they come out of the gates and beat them by like 40 points, then I'll feel pretty good about the rest of the year, that's for sure. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, this, this is a battle of our secondary fandoms, by the way. Um, yeah, I'm, I know. I, I didn't even consider that. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see how Louisville comes out and what they look like uh, in week one after the Bobby Petrino era and into the Scott Satterfield era. So um, should be an interesting game for your Labor Day night before you have to go back to work on Tuesday. So yep. um, we'll recap that game in the uh, week two preview, though, for sure. Yep. Uh, Mike, you want to get out of here and come back and preview week two? For sure, man. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, for that guy, Mr. Mike McDaniel, I am Joey Weaver. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. And until next time, go ACC.